0: Oh, my friend, I have Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson in the house today. And if that name sounds familiar to you, I'm not surprised. Susan is an expert on the psychology of eating and food addiction. She's an associate professor at the University of Rochester and a multiple New York Times bestseller. If you've been experimenting with weight loss solutions for a little while, you are probably familiar with her method, bright line eating. If so, you might be surprised that Susan and I are friends. Our programs and our methods are pretty different. For example, Susan recommends total abstinence from certain foods. I'm more about moderation. Susan weighs and measures everything she eats. I'm about fill half of your plate with vegetables. Susan doesn't think that you should exercise when trying to lose weight. And I think that's a great idea for the most part. So here's the difference. Susan is a food addict in recovery, and she helps other food addicts have freedom and peace around their food. You are going to be fascinated by Susan's story of addiction. And even if food addiction doesn't resonate for you, you will love how Susan Pierce Thompson, PhD explains the latest research on weight loss, including drugs like Ozempic and the psychology of our brains and our behavior around food. It's time, it's time to get your head out of your ass and start creating a life of no regrets. Whether you want to lose weight, get rich, or manifest a hot threesome on the beach, you're going to want to turn this up. This is Goals, Grit, and Some Woo Woo Shit with your host, best selling author, and professional butt kicker, Una Duncan. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to introduce you to the one and only my friend, Susan Pierce Thompson. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Una. So good to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah, so Susan is an expert on the psychology of eating, and she specializes in food addiction. So the first thing right off the bat, Susan, could you tell us, like, can you define food addiction for us? Yeah, I think of addiction, and you know that I come from this as
1: someone who identifies as an addict, right? So, you know, you can look up the definition on Google or in a textbook, but I think of addiction as using in a way that you know is hurting yourself, and you can't stop. You want to stop, you can't stop. And you don't know why you keep doing this to yourself, but you do. And you've tried to stop and you can't. And it's miserable. That's addiction, right? And so by that definition, not everyone is addicted to things. Ever. Like, there's some people who just aren't addictable, and research shows that that's about one third of brains. They're not addictable at all. One third of people are moderately susceptible to addiction, and one third of people, like me, God bless me, are extremely susceptible to addiction.
0: To any addiction? So if I, for example, have a history of alcoholism in my family, and I know that, oh, I really like my, my substances when I like them, or do you know, and then would I say like, well, then I'm probably more susceptible to food addiction as well?
1: The way addictive susceptibility works is that if you've got it, it applies across the board as susceptibility, but the manifestation of that addiction in a certain domain is going to require a period of wiring up the experiences of the cues that predict the reward, the reward hitting the brain, the brain going, oh yeah, baby, mm, yeah. that'll do. <laughs> and then you doing it again, right? Mm. And it takes time. So I'm uh, as susceptible as they come. I've been addicted to almost everything. But for whatever reason, shopping doesn't float my boat. I've never been addicted to shopping. Malls have fluorescent lights. They give me a headache. I don't one click on Amazon. I could care less, right? So, but who knows, right? My husband, God forbid, and all three kids die in a car accident. I've recreated my life a few months later, but I'm still sad and miserable. And I go out somewhere and notice that this outfit looks really cute and I buy it. I feel a little better. Then Mm -hmm. later that night, I'm one clicking on Amazon to remodel my room because I just downsized the house. You get it, right? Like fast forward, I could become addicted to shopping, but it takes time to build it up in a new
0: domain. How would one know if they, where they are, if they're in the, the Top third that is not addictable, the the middle third that's like somewhat addictable, or the bottom third that just really Gets addicted to you very easily.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, a few ways. So one is look around your family. Right? Mm-hmm. How many alcoholics, drug addicts, smokers, people with obesity? Have you got? Right? Addict- addiction is genetic, but it's not purely genetic. It's also environmental. And not every addict uh, looks around to their immediate or extended family and sees a lot of addicts. So next up is look at your personality. Are you impulsive? Overly sensitive? Generally have a hard time with impulse control? Like to Dial the dial to 11, you know, instead of 10. So that's another thing. And then when it comes to food addiction in particular, which is my specialty, I have a simple five question quiz that takes, you know, a hot second to answer where you can get a read on which third you're in when it comes to food addiction in particular. So that's things like, you know, do you lose control over how much you eat once you start to eat? Do you feel like oftentimes after eating a kind of a regular sized meal, a moderate amount of food, you just don't feel satisfied? Mm. Do you ever binge? Do you get cravings? Do you drive across town or wander up and down the grocery store aisles or stare into the refrigerator incessantly looking for the food that's going to hit the spot? Or are you spending too much time thinking about what you've eaten or not eaten? whether you're on your plan or off your plan, how many miles, how many calories, how many pounds is that kind of the, the narrative running in your head a lot. So those hmm. are the signs and symptoms of food addiction in particular.
0: Some of those sound like dieting addiction. I don't know, is there a distinction between someone who's a food addict who is more likely to binge versus someone who's a dieting addict who is always trying to diet more or, or constantly monitoring their calories in, calories out, their behavior, uh, obsessed with these kind of things? I don't know if I would draw a distinction between those two. I think they're highly, highly correlated because
1: it's not just the food chatter, it's the weight chatter as well. That kind of calories in, calories out focus, uh, there's a name for it. It's called exercise bulimia, right? Mm. If you're exercising to burn off the stuff you just ate or the stuff you yeah. might eat or whatever, that's not exercise the way a healthy mind's, mm-hmm. mindset in person would exercise, right? That's
0: mm. addiction. I wonder how much of that is a genetic predisposition versus society's diet culture.
1: Absolutely, culture is driving a lot of it, right? But it's, it's dieting culture and then it's the ultra-processed food environment together that are a double whammy, right? I think where it starts is dieting culture takes these eight and 10 and 12-year-old kids, mostly girls, Not always girls, but mostly girls who don't really have a weight problem yet often and convinces them to go on their first diet. And then the issue starts, right? Because calorie restriction is actually the precursor to a lot of this madness. And a lot of us would have been just fine if we hadn't started trying to lose weight in the first place. But that starts the terrible cycle in motion. So yeah, I think a lot of it is culturally driven and I don't at all poo poo the impact of that. And just like, you know, drinking culture is all around us. And for some people, it goes past that line and it becomes alcoholism. For some people, they cross the line and the insanity really turns into food
0: addiction. So depending on where you are on that susceptibility scale, the more influenced you're going to be by diet culture. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so basically. um you know, I was doing my research on you, and I saw your your um, your thing on the Today Show, and you were talking about your background and your story. And you started by saying that you started to diet when you were, I think, twelve years old. And you, and even before that, you were a little bit always really obsessed with food. You were really interested yeah. in food even as a little kid. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your your story?
1: You know, I hate to call it a diet because my mom, who was not overweight ever, my mom's a bit of a thing and always has been. Uh, was very interested in what she calls science diets, right? She was interested in healthy eating. I think she and I went on the Pritikin diet together when maybe I was 10, you know, Mm. it might be that by the time I was 11, I weighed more than I weigh now, right? So I was, Mm. I was, I was putting on weight and I have a propensity to gain weight that my mother has
0: never had and it might have alarmed her. Right. So So, when you were heavy at age 11, was that because of any addictive behaviors or just genetics? It's just the way it was.
1: No, it was already addictive behaviors. Like I started making big bowls of raw cookie dough and hiding them in my room, you know, when I was Mm. probably seven or eight and I could cook Thanksgiving dinner for the whole family when I was eight or nine years old. Like I was an amazing cook and we didn't do bags and boxes. We did home cooking from scratch. My grandma knew Julia Child. We were very, (laughs) very like, we were good in the kitchen around my family. So- Yeah, it was food obsession and it was food addiction, I think, already from a young age, but I didn't, I wasn't really obsessed with my body terribly yet. But then basically what happened then was I I turned to drugs when I was 14 because I did mushrooms and had a great experience. And unfortunately, our language has this one word drugs and Nancy Reagan was on her whole just say no campaign. And so I did mushrooms and had an amazing spiritual mind-opening experience and then basically said to myself, oh,
0: drugs drugs aren't bad.
1: They're good. (laughs) I do drugs now. They're wrong. (laughs) They've been lying Uh to me. I just had my own firsthand experience and Mm. drugs are amazing. So, you know, before long, I was snorting crystal meth regularly, and that is not so spiritually expanding. And right. I was, you know, grappling with drug induced psychosis and then dropped out of high school. So um it went downhill very quickly. And by the age of 19, I was, you know, a high school dropout and a prostitute and a crack addict. And so drugs went bad. They went south for me quite badly. I got clean and sober when I was 20. Thank you God biggest miracle of my life haven't had a drink or a drug in just a tad
0: shy of 30 years now coming up on my 30 year anniversary. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about because that is such a huge accomplishment and I know that later on in the conversation we're going to talk about what people need to do to get off food addiction and it's yeah. freaking hard and what you did getting off your drug addiction was really hard. So I don't want to gloss over the fact that you did that. Can you tell us yeah. what that what happened? How did you do it? Yeah, totally. Okay, well, the moment, the turning point
1: was um, a Tuesday morning, August 9th, 1994. I was in a crack house. I'd been there for days and days and days smoking crack. I had a shaved head and a blonde wig on my head, like literally a platinum blonde wig on my head. And the universe just cracked wide open for me. And really all that happened was suddenly I was there. I was present. I hadn't been sleeping, but suddenly I was conscious, really exquisitely conscious. And as I looked around the room and was kind of shocked, actually, of where I was, I I didn't feel like I had chosen that reality. It had been this gradual, creeping non-choice that had happened over years and suddenly there I was, I had been a fabulous student as a little kid, you know, thought I was going to Harvard and stuff. And here I was like, I hadn't been in school in years and it was, it was shocking to me. And I got a deep knowing in that, that place deep in the gut where we know things, right? And I just knew suddenly that if I didn't get up and get out of there right then, that my whole life was going to be an endless cycle of trying to clean up, relapsing, and going back to drugs and prostitution over and over and over and over again. So I let that sink in for a second, and then I just stood up and grabbed my jacket and walked out the door. I didn't have a place to live then, Uh so I went over to this guy's house and crashed and slept and showered and then felt quite a bit better. Put my pager on my hip, was about to go back to work that night, And as the universe would have it, I had a first date that night, not a paid for money date, but like an actual legit date with this cute guy I'd met at a gas station at three in the morning. Who was taking me out because he knew I was a call girl and Mm. he was a sex addict, but he was a sober alcoholic as well. And he took me to a 12 step meeting that night on our first date for drug and alcohol rehabilitation only because he was selfish and self-absorbed. And that was the happening place where he and his friends always went on Tuesday nights and that's where he wanted to go. So he brought Mm -hmm. me. And I got a 24 hour coin and I haven't had a drink or a drug since that day, but you're right. It was hard. It didn't just like happen like a, like a Mm -hmm. miracle. I mean, it was a miracle, but it was a lot of, a lot of work as well. I started going to meetings. I started working the steps. I got a sponsor and I really threw myself into recovery and, and I got a legitimate life. I stopped working for the call girl agency that night. I got a job at a movie theater selling popcorn. I mm-hmm. enrolled in community college. Thank God for the community college system in California. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And, you know, a year later, I was doing great and transferred to UC Berkeley and got 4.0s and spoke at the graduation and became an academic. I became a tenured psychology professor after that. Got my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences. And, you know, all through my college years, I was... um going to 12-step meetings. When people were studying for exams, I was going to meetings saying, I'm scared. I've got exams. And they would say, well, you know, if you go home and study and show up for the test, you'll probably do better than if you don't.
0: (laughs) And I would say, (laughs) you're probably right. Thanks. (laughs) And I would go home and study and show up for the test. It was amazing. That is an amazing transformation. And you've accomplished so much since then, uh, becoming a tenured professor. And but Inside, you were also still struggling with addiction. There was a bit of a cross addiction there. Right. Cross addiction. Totally. So
1: immediately when I got clean, my addiction jumped right over to food. Like boom, didn't skip a beat. And before I knew it, I was 60 pounds heavier, which I'm short. So that put me at clinical obesity. And I was going to these meetings for drug and alcohol rehabilitation and talking about how I was eating. And people were really kind of blowing me off, poo-pooing me and saying, well, you know, patting me on the head and saying, at least you're not smoking crack anymore. And that didn't comfort me. I wanted to cry when they said that. I was like, you have no idea how I'm eating. If you had any idea how I was eating, you would not
0: be diminishing it like that.
1: Well, like I'd get out of my meeting at 1am because it was a midnight meeting. I was, you know, I was 20 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So I was out late and I'd get out of the meeting at 1am. And I'd go to Taco Bell and I'd grab like four, you know, tacos the way I like them. And then I'd go to 7 Eleven and grab two pints of ice cream. And then I'd go to Safeway and I'd grab a box, a box of pasta, a pack of English muffins with butter and strawberry jam. I'd grab maybe two or three Twix bars. And maybe, uh, you know, ingredients to make brownies. And I'd go home and I'd make that food and I would sit and I would eat and eat. I'd go out and smoke a cigarette, come back in and eat some more, go out and smoke a cigarette, come back in and eat some more. And at 4 a.m. I'd come in from a cigarette and the TV would have those big vertical mm-hmm. stripes with the sound. You know, because back then they would end programming at four AM, and um, and I had the realization of this is not sober behavior. Like I am not just eating here; I am using. This actually feels really similar to being in the crack house,
0: and no one was paying attention. So, how did you start to apply the lessons you were learning in addiction to your food? You had a realization: this feels the same. And then, do you seek support? How did you work your way out of that?
1: I did. So I went to a 12-step program for food. But the challenge is that food is harder, right? Like, you can't just stop eating. So I went to a program that didn't actually give me any specific guidance around what to eat or not eat. They said, abstain from the foods and eating behaviors that cause you difficulty, and it took me a shocking long time to even get close to figuring that out. Like uh, this woman came up to me at a meeting after a few months and she said, you know, timidly, like you might want to consider abstaining from sugar. And I got really offended. Mm. And I was like, why do you say that? And she was like, well, you know how you were just sharing that you're writing a paper at UC Berkeley and you're sitting, you, last night you sat down and ate a box of brown sugar with a spoon while you were oh. writing the paper. She was like, she's like, I don't know. Maybe that's not a healthy snack. (laughs) Like, Oh, she's right. Maybe I do have a problem with sugar. So, but, but eight and a half years later in that program, going to like a meeting every day and trying to work the steps with a sponsor, all the same things that had worked with drugs and alcohol. I was literally heavier and no more sane. I would get interludes of peace and lose a little bit of weight and feel a little better. And then I would relapse again. But even while I was doing quote unquote, well, I was getting by by drinking 10 diet sodas a day. And, you know, just not free, not free. And I was running, you know, the experiment of well, maybe I'll eat Not white flour, but brown flour. And I'll Mm -hmm. have no sugar, but I'll be eating artificial sweeteners. And, you know, like it was just around and around still. And you were just
0: throwing spaghetti at the wall.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I was doing my best. It's just that food is really freaking tricky. And you can't abstain that you can't abstain and the food addicted mind will weasel its way into a way to get a hit out of just about anything. And, Mm. and frankly, in the rooms of the meetings I was going to, I wasn't seeing a lot of recovery, not like I was seeing in the drug and alcohol rooms, right? So about eight and a half years later, at this point, I'd already moved to Rochester, New York, and I was just about done with my PhD. I mean, so here's the other thing, right? It's really noteworthy I had a lot of professional success while I was using food addictively, right? Mm. I could eat my way through success and productivity. And a lot of professional people fuel a tremendous amount of success with caffeine and sugar and addictive eating, right? And I think that for a lot of families where addiction is in play in the family system, A lot of people don't think of themselves as food addicts because they know who the addicts are. And Mm. it's their brother who's an alcoholic. It's their, you know, et cetera, right? And they think of themselves as the non-addict in the family. And then I come along and I'm like, oh, sweetheart, actually, you know, look at your eating. And they go, oh, Mm. right. Anyway, I finally found a group of people that told me exactly what to eat and not eat and how. And I lost my excess weight. And I got very involved in that program, sponsored a lot, helped a lot of people um, find freedom. And at this point, then I'd finished my postdoc in Australia. I'd come back to the United States. I was a tenured psychology professor, and I was teaching the psychology of eating with a, a unit on the neuroscience of food addiction. And I'd been in this stricter program for about... 10 years at this point, when bright line eating was born. In my morning meditation, the universe told me to write a book called Bright Line Eating. I set out to do that. And this whole bright line eating movement was born out of basically wanting to convey to the world what sustainable weight loss looks like, how food addiction plays a role in people's struggles with food. And what really works, you know, r- what really works for the, if you think of the one third, one third, one third thing we've talked about, right, it means that two thirds of people have enough food addiction on board that it's keeping them from really meeting their goals, you know, mm-hmm. two thirds of people. And oh, look, two thirds of people are struggling with overweight and obesity, right? And it's, um, it's not a trivial thing. And it's, it's a problem that just keeps getting bigger, no pun intended. So um, yeah, so I just set out to write a book, and it turned into this, this big thing.
0: Um, yeah. It's well, hey, okay, tell intended. us what works. Tell us about the bright lines.
1: So what works is, frankly, Una, st- stricter boundaries than I ever wanted to follow. I mean, there was this one woman in my, my old meetings that didn't work, the loosey-goosey meetings, you know, there was this one woman in my meetings who was thin. I have to give her that. But she was also. I just didn't like her. Like she was always in the corner, and she was just like. We would pass around this notebook and write our phone numbers and names down and how we were feeling that day. And every weekend morning, she would write down she was feeling serene and profoundly grateful.
0: And oh. I just
1: I was like, <laughs> who is serene and profoundly grateful every freaking Saturday morning? And she weighed and measured her food, and she ate no flour and no sugar. And I just thought, I am never doing that. That is mm. crazy pants. Mm. I just, that is ludicrous. Yeah. And I bucked it for years and years and years. And eight and a half years later, after I'd tried every last thing under, <laughs> under the sky, I finally heard from this group of people, oh, yeah, it actually is. No sugar, no flour. Weigh and measure your food. And by that point, I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I I need something. I have tried everything. And what I found was I got so free so fast and that the structure and boundaries around food actually produces a shocking amount of freedom. And I teach people how to get that freedom today. It's really not about obsession or punitiveness or Limits. It's really about the boundaries that the brain needs to get really free. And I got to say, we eat every whole real food in Brightline Eating. Every mm-hmm. single one. Every grain. Every dairy. Every meat. Every legume. Every seed. Every pea. Every every vegetable. Every fruit. Everything. We eat everything in Brightline Eating that is an actual food.
0: Well, uh, there's a couple of things when when you t- when you said this is the magic. Everybody, listen up. Come close no sugar, no flour, weigh and measure your food. I feel like I can hear half of the listeners going like, no, Susan, I tried that and it didn't work. You you know what I mean? Like it Mm. seems too simple almost. And I think that maybe people try it, but they kind of don't 100% commit. Can you Mm. maybe describe like, no, no, no. When I say it, I mean like it's a bright line. Tell us about bright lines and what you really mean by that. Like it's not like you get a a cheat day. It's not like no. this is just for weekdays and weekends are off. It's not like right. you get to party on your birthday. It's really a bright line. So tell us about the yeah. brightness of that.
1: Yeah. And you and I have hung out and you know, I don't mess around, you know, <laughs> like my food is really simple, but you've also seen me eat and I'm not eating like a
0: bird, right? I mm-hmm. I eat, you know? So yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll describe that actually, because so Susan yeah. and I were at a restaurant and Everybody else is with, and including me, with our margaritas and the nachos and stuff like that. And Susan has very particularly ordered a massive salad, um, dressing on the side. She has her scale. She's ordered protein on the side. Maybe, maybe you can describe it a little bit better, Susan. But and this is Susan, and I don't know how many years recover you are, but you're still bringing your scale to restaurants. You're still ordering in a very specific way, and you're not messing around if there's some sugar in that dressing. Right. That's how bright we're talking these lines. And
1: I'm and I'm drinking club soda with extra lime. And I'm ordering like four things. You all are ordering one Mm. because I'm having that big salad. And I'm having you know maybe two sides of the roasted Brussels sprouts because I know they're going to bring me not enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm ordering you know a big side of the black beans or whatever. And then depending on whether you're already at maintenance, you know a side of rice or something like that. And and I want it really sort of Clean and enough. And you know, you have to eat a lot of food if you're going to eat as clean as I eat. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the little side salad on the side, like, no, 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 I'm having an entree size salad and the other food. Right. And when you're home, write down your food the night before and automaticity is really the key. Really what we're doing from a neuroscience perspective is we're shifting the way we eat. From the I'm deciding in the moment part of the brain, which is like the prefrontal cortex that's judging and deciding and evaluating and, you know, also thinking, what do I feel like eating and what do I have time for and all that jazz, right? To like the cerebellum and the basal ganglia that are executing pre-wired behavior sequences the same parts of the brain that help you brush your teeth mm-hmm. like if you think about the automaticity with which you brush your teeth and now of course I'm speaking to the 95% of people who do if you're the 5% of people mm-hmm. who often fall into bed and think to, your, to yourself like should I brush my teeth tonight maybe I'll just blow it off like I'm not talking about you I'm talking about the 95% who who brush their teeth at night whether they're sick whether they're traveling whether it's late and it's new year's eve and they've been part- partying like the teeth brushing just happens. And it's cued by a time of day and a, you know, a sort of behavior sequence and an awareness that now it's time to do it, right? And it just happens. You don't need a sticky note on your mirror to remind you. You don't need to be motivated. It just happens. You're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it and then you collapse into bed, right? And I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner in that same way. Mm -hmm. Automatically. It just happens, eating the right thing, the thing that I want to be eating. And yeah, I've been maintaining, you know, I'm I'm pretty petite. I'm like your size, right? Size four, five three, 115 pounds. I'm petite and I've been this way for 20 years. And I have all the genes for obesity. And, you know, I was I was living with obesity by my mid-20s. And I've been in my personal right-sized body now for 20 years. And I've been maintaining that for all this time. And I do it by Having set up a system that's now so automatic that it's easy. And I love my food. I am not deprived. I, I hate this. I start to feel like I sound like, like a fanatic. I'm not a fanatic <laughs> about this stuff. I just have y'all, the consequences for me. If I don't do it are so bad that I've just been beaten into submission by my own experience. And I want to be joyful. I want to feel empowered. I want to show up feeling great in my skin. And this is what it takes for me to do that. Like the food gets in my way and my food addiction progressed to outrageous proportions, very young. And so this is the care that I take for myself. You know, this is what I do.
0: Hey, dude, if you are enjoying this episode and you have a friend that you think might also benefit from this information, please share it with them. That helps my podcast so much, and it's going to help your friend. Share the love. Thanks so much. I love that you frame it as self-care versus self-deprivation. Hey, if you're liking this episode and you want to make sure you don't miss the next one, you can sign up at unaduncan.com slash podcast, and I'll be sure to keep you in the loop. Okay, back to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about if you did, for example, if if someone gave you salad dressing and it did have sugar in it, w- yeah. would it trigger something in you? Like what would happen? Mm.
1: Well, uh, sometimes I can't tell because balsamic vinegar is pretty sweet, mm-hmm. Right. And like all drugs, sugar is dose dependent, meaning that tiny amounts will have smaller effects, right? I'm not a chemist, right? That happens sometimes. And if I go home, I'll probably be fine. You know, we're only responsible when we're aware, right? So that would not be a five alarm fire. However, the triggering is physiological and it's real. So here's an example. I know people who call in for coaching in bright line eating and they say, I was so free, Susan, and I had no food thoughts. And then I'm I'm having cravings all the time. I I can't figure out what's going on. And I know enough to start asking around, like, what have you started eating recently or drinking or doing? And then we'll come down to okay, now they're drinking celestial seasonings tea, the Bengal spice or the blueberry. That's my favorite one. like I'm like, yeah, there you go. Well, it's got (laughs) natural flavors in it. It's got, it's an ultra processed food. It's got, it's got (sighs) natural flavors in there that are hiding sweeteners, which is no problem for you. If like sweeteners aren't, you know, a five alarm fire for Mm. you, but for this person, it's now triggering food cravings on the order of their brain is now suggesting to them all the time. Maybe you should eat. Maybe you Mm. should go eat. Maybe you should binge. You know, maybe you need to go eat. And they stop drinking that celestial seasonings tea and now they're fine. So, that's a nuanced answer to your question. And actually, it's funny because I'm the queen of bright lines, which are clear, unambiguous boundaries that you never cross. But you, if you talk with me for any length of time, you'll realize I'm all about the nuance, right? I've been doing this long enough to know that it's nuanced. So the, the sugar and the
0: salad dressing, yeah, it's nuanced. Because I feel like some people would hear this and they would think... Oh, I'll never, I would never be able to sustain that or it's unhealthy to be so strict. And oh, it'd make me so sad to never have birthday cake again. And I'm, I'm guessing your response to that is no, it, it'll make you happy to not have to be <laughs> obsessing about when you get to next have birthday cake. Am I right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, yeah, the, let's take those, those, those objections that people have in their minds are actually each very different. So mm-hmm. let's take that. I'll be so sad to never have birthday cake again. Mm-hmm. So that is a particular way of thinking that I like to speak to directly because what I find as an addict as an addict in recovery is that it is the very very first objection that the addicted mind says is I can't do this forever therefore I shouldn't even start a path of recovery now for sure and it's a lie it is a literal lie and it's a lie because forever doesn't exist we never get to live our lives forever we only get to live today And one day at a time is not just a platitude. It's not just a slogan. It's it's the actual truth of how life unfolds. And the reality is when that time in the future comes, you'll be different. You won't think of it the way you will, you do now. Your brain will have healed. You'll have habits on board. You'll be going to that event thinking about other things like, you know, how your kid is doing and, mm-hmm. you know, the conversation you just had with your partner and blah, blah, blah. And you won't be thinking about the birthday cake. It'll be not on your mind, actually. And so the you now that thinks I could never not have birthday cake, you know, on this occasion in the future is it's a lie. It's such a lie that I try to label it for people. Like It's like an email arriving in your inbox that says, I'm in Zimbabwe, and if you wire $50,000 to my account, I will invest it in this investment, and it will give you a million dollars. It's that kind of lie. It's the kind of big, fat, bald-faced, outrageous lie that you just go delete. Mm. That's just not true, right? And so if I may, can I tell like a two-minute story that explains that. like how this how this pans out? So yeah. I told you I got clean and sober on my 20 like just after my 20th birthday, right? So I'm going to these meetings. And of course, all I can think about is I can't not drink alcohol on my 21st birthday. Uh, for sure. My 21st birthday is coming up. And everyone's like, well, when's that? And I'm like, in ten and a half months. <laughs> They're like, why don't you stay sober today and not worry about that? But it was all I could think about. I can't. I can't start this program now. I, my twenty-first birthday is coming up. Mm-hmm. I can't do this now because it's coming up. Then, right? And everyone just said, "Why don't you just not worry about that today? Just work this program today." So finally, I just did. Everyone was saying that, so I just like, okay, I'll do it today. So months went by, and suddenly someone's asking me, "Hey, Susan, are you going to the convention?" And I'm like, what are you talking about? What convention? And they said, well, oh, you haven't heard? Every five years, the international convention happens. And it's coming up and it's in San Diego. And a bunch of us are driving down from San Francisco to San Diego to go to it. You want to come with us? And I was like, yeah, when is it? And they said, well, it starts June 29th and it goes to July 3rd. And don't you know that June 29th, 1995 was my 25th 21st birthday. Mm. And so on my 21st birthday, I'm dancing in the streets in San Francisco till like three in the morning in San, o- San Diego. Sorry. I'm butchering this story in San Diego. I'm dancing in the streets with 60,000 sober alcoholics. Mm. So grateful to be sober, having the time of my life. And the last thing in my mind is that I need to be drinking because it's my 21st birthday, right? Like the future takes care of itself in ways you can't even imagine. So the thought that you can't get healthy and well and address your issues today because you couldn't not eat pizza forever. It's a lie. That $50,000 does not need to be wired into that count. Delete that thought. It's just a lie. It doesn't work like that, right? Do what's right for you today. And the future actually does take care of itself.
0: I love that story so much. I had so many goosebumps with picturing you dancing in San Diego. I freaking love it. Thank you. That is a great story.
1: Yeah, it probably happened that way, just so I could tell that story on podcast <laughs> today.
0: Yeah, and then
1: you know the the other objections about like you know what are what were some of those other things you said? Like it um, just feels
0: too strict. It just you know. Yeah, yeah. So here's here's things that I think people would think. First of all, and I think you already uh, said this one is like uh, a loss of identity. But like, I'm the life at the party girl. Um, I don't want to be one of those fussy eaters. Do you want to talk about that one? Okay, I'll get real here for a second. That's that's real. Mm. That's a little real. You know, I
1: really do still wish I could be the person who can rock up to the restaurant and just order what I feel like eating. And it still smarts a little bit that I, when I travel, you know, I'm not going to be like, With tons of ease going to the restaurants that are, you know, the ones that you need to eat at in Belgium and eating exactly Mm -hmm. the cuisine or whatever, right? Like, there is a little of that. There is. And what I can say is, like, pick your heart, right? Like if you look at my life and how I live and how I feel in my skin and about my life, I mean, I do travel to Belgium. Like I have traveled around the world doing this and it's true that I need some small accommodations. You know, it's true that I prefer to stay in an Airbnb because I have a kitchen and I can hit a grocery store and I'll eat out once a day instead of three times a day. You know, that's more manageable for me. It's like living in my, you know, healthiest body is you know, like I'm coming up on 50. I do not feel 50. You know, mm. like you my next birthday, 50. I'll be 50. Yeah. I don't feel 50. I'm told I don't look 50. And, you know, like the benefits of it so far outweigh that. But I won't lie, that one is is, is a little bit of a bummer. It is, you know. Oh. And, you know, the way I was living the other way was like more than a little a bit of bummer. a bummer. Yeah, so, a big bummer in the yeah. crack house.
0: I got it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for your honesty on that. I appreciate that. What about... Oh, I'll never be able to sustain this.
1: That's a real thing too. Sustaining it is a, is a thing. And the thing about how I teach people to do this is that it works so well that they quickly think, I've got this. And then they go off on their own mm-hmm. and they find that sustaining it on their own is a thing. And. Uh, it starts to unravel slowly over time on them. And then they notice that they, they're back to kind of where they started. And what happens is that the people who stay close to the community of us who do this and stay like keep it as an identity, right? Like the person who's a vegetarian who just says, I'm a vegetarian, mm. right? The bright lifers around the world, like they're bright lifers and they stick together and they know that they still do this for real. Like they, they become kind of card carrying mm. bright lifers, right? And it's not the kind of thing that's that easy to sustain on your own, unless you're lower on the food addiction susceptibility scale. There are all kinds of people. So the scale we were talking about of one third, one third, one third, I put it on a scale from one to 10 when Mm -hmm. people take the quiz. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, are you a six? That means you're in the middle third, right? Or are you a nine? That means, you know, you're way up like me. I'm a 10, right? And it's the eights and nines and tens and maybe sevens who kind of need to be the card carrying like I really do this kind of people. You know, the fours, fives and sixes, they don't. Mm -hmm. They can take, you know, learn how to do it and then kind of take it on their merry way and modify it and and be fine. Mm-hmm. But don't be fooled, sustaining it is a thing. And this is why, you know, most weight is regained after it's lost, not in Bright Line Eating, but, you know, in other in programs yeah. and in general, because frankly, sustaining any behavior change is a thing. It's not trivial. You have to stay in the environment where that new way of living is going to be reinforced on a continual basis.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, final objection. And then I want to ask you about uh, the new drugs that are available to lose weight. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of drugs. um, But before that, one more objection. What about it's unhealthy to be so strict? So we have data on that. This is a
1: great segue to talk about research and drugs and all that. Great. The data actually are in and it is not unhealthy to be so strict. So the reality is that just from two months of living this way, people's health goes up in every way, shape and form. So all of their blood, you know, numbers get better that that you would expect, right? Their weight starts to come off shockingly fast. That's amazing. But we published a paper recently on psychosocial metrics. And this is published research. I don't mess around. I publish my stuff in peer reviewed scientific journals. Um, so this study was published showing that people's quality of life goes up astronomically from doing it. Their energy levels go up astronomically. Their feelings of being loved, supported, and connected in the world go up astronomically. Their loneliness plummets, right? Their depression plummets, and their days of poor mental health plummet their hunger goes down, their cravings go down after just two months to little or no hunger or cravings anymore ever. And their peace and serenity with food skyrockets. So you would think you'd become more obsessed with food by doing all this crazy stuff with your food, right? Uh, But actually, their peace and serenity with food goes up. Now, it's not everybody but it's almost everybody. It's like verging on 90% of people, right? Mm. Then we, we also analyzed the data because we had them for the cohort of people that started our, our way of life during COVID. So during April, May and June of 2020, when we were all just reeling from yeah. the lockdowns and what was happening on this earth and the effect size was significantly larger for every one of those metrics I just mentioned, showing that not only does it improve overall well-being, quality of life on, on all those levels, but it builds in resilience too. It makes you more resilient
0: to really, really hard things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Amazing. I did want to ask you a question I get a lot is about um, how to raise your kids in an environment where they are going to have peace around food. And I know your kids don't follow bright line eating because they don't need to, right? So how, Correct. but what else should we do with our kids so that they don't start sneaking off with the uh, treats? And yeah. are you saying that's something we can't avoid?
1: It's a hard one. It's pretty hard to avoid in this food culture, because it's not what we do or don't do that's making kids sneak off with treats. It's exposure to the ultra processed foods Mm -hmm. um, that ultimately is going to do that in the kids that have brains that are susceptible. But there are things that we can do to minimize the risk. I think meal structure is really important. Family dinners, the research is so strong on this. Sit down as a a family and have dinner with your kids. And keep meal structure, right? Kids don't just need breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but they also need snacks in between. But like a snack is a A structured thing. It's a structured sit-down meal. Mm. It's not just a bag of something. Yeah, exactly. Right, and I get this uh, from Ellen Satter, who's amazing. She doesn't believe in food addiction. We've talked. We disagree on that. However, I really support and like her research on raising kids and healthy eaters. And what she proposes is the division of responsibility, which is the parent is responsible for uh, what and when is the meal is being served and the kid is responsible for whether and how much they're going to eat from what's mm. provided. Perfect. So literally you provide the food and then you become deaf, dumb and blind to anything that happens after that. You're not noticing if there's, if the, if the meal, like the other night at my house, we had, what, are, what do we make? We made, uh, salmon and white rice. And butter and broccoli. And I had my broccoli plain. Everyone else, I put, uh, butter, soy sauce and lemon on it. They love that. And then some pot stickers. Okay. Everyone loved this dinner. Delicious. I had the, and I made myself a, sa- a salad on the side too. And I had the salmon, broccoli and salad and rice and everybody else had everything else. Okay. But if one of my kids were just going to mow down on the white rice and butter and eat nothing else, I would not notice. I would not comment. Mm. If another one of my kids would mow down on broccoli and then ask for seconds and then thirds, I would not praise. Mm. Like food is food. You're going to decide whether and what to eat and how much from what is provided, period. And what you'll notice is kids will grow to like vegetables in a climate where they're not bullied to eat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they will and my kids do. They like broccoli, they like Brussels sprouts, they like they like most vegetables, all of them. They don't all like all vegetables. Zoe loves peas, Robbie hates peas,
0: but you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's, that's my best advice Thank around you. feeding kids. I love that division of responsibility. It's so good. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about, um, Ozempic. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So
1: what's interesting about these drugs is that they curb appetite, but they also seem to squelch addiction. We don't know how yet, but the research keeps coming in. It's, I don't know if it's research, it's anecdotes, right? But that, but that people on these drugs are not only losing weight and not eating so much, but they're also not smoking so much. They're not drinking so much. They're just losing interest in rewarding addictive things. And it's noteworthy. I can't wait to find out how those drugs are affecting the mesolimbic reward pathway, the addictive centers of the brain. Suddenly people are in a context that they can manage, Mm -hmm. right? It's that people can't manage their weight because they're being hounded by their brain to eat. They're being hounded. And you can will your way out of that conundrum for a bit, but just like you can hold your breath for a bit, you can't just do it indefinitely, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, the thing that people are faced with. So- You know, and of course, Ozempic and Wagovi have amazing upsides, like cardiovascular benefits, but some huge downsides too, right? Like thyroid cancer potentially, and then also all the gastrointestinal side effects that a lot of people get. Some people, they go, they go away, but you know, we're talking like potential stomach or intestinal blockage, Hmm. um, gas, belching, bloating, severe abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea terrible, terrible vomiting, uh, mm. terrible gastrointestinal side effects. And we have no long-term data yet on what's happening to people's GI systems from the drugs. So beware. But, and then the other issue is when people go off of Wagovia and Ozempic, they gain back two thirds of their weight within a year. And the, the weight regain is pretty fast. So unfortunately, I mean, it's not shocking when you go off a cholesterol medicine, you would assume to not get the benefits anymore. But it is too bad that the weight that's already lost isn't maintained off, it's,
0: it's going to come back. Because you're an academic, I appreciate so much that you're bringing all this research to us. I know that everyone's going to be so interested about where they are at in the susceptibility scale. And I think you've got a quiz. We do have a quiz.
1: It's the food addiction susceptibility quiz and they can take it at brightlineeating.com. I really encourage people to learn their number. It's from one to 10. And if you're a 10 like me, oh, baby cakes. We got, <laughs> we got some talking to do because. You know, it'll explain a lot, right? You Mm -hmm. probably listening to this already know if you're a 10, this is not gonna be total news to you, you know. But what if you're a six, seven, eight, or nine? Then you know, it it's like you're gonna need to factor that in as you consider your relationship with food. And if you're a two or a three, then you kind of know, all right, this doesn't apply to you, right? We're not talking about you Mm -hmm. in this interview. Mm -hmm. And Get on with your bad self. Have your margarita, (laughs) eat your nachos on a Saturday. Go back to eating a salad, you know, during regular times. Be moderate, be mindful, eat healthily and don't sweat the small stuff, right? The difference is that if you're like a a five or under on that scale, sometimes scratching the itch with a little treat with food is going to scratch the itch. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And if you're like a nine or a 10, scratching the itch is pretty much always going to make it itchier. It's just not worth it. And you might be shocked by the level of structure you're going to need to implement to get the results
0: you want. Awesome. If anyone's listening to this and they're like, oh my God, that's me. And they're in a dark place (laughs) and they're kind of beating themselves up about it. One of the things I love about following you, Susan, is that you are so open and you speak from the heart so much. And I wonder if you, if you do have a little message for anyone who's listening to this and maybe hearing about your experiences with food addiction and being like, oh, fuck, box of sugar? Yes, please. If there's <laughs> anyone who's listening to this who can relate, is there anything you'd like to say to them? Oh, I just want to say I understand. And you're not alone and there is hope and there is
1: help. And if there's anything I can do for you, just reach out, come to brightlineheating.com and just make use of the resources. I put out a free video every Wednesday. There's hundreds of them now. You can access them all over the place, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you are, just come find me. And whatever question you've got, type it into the search box. I've probably done a video on it. And I just want to say, I love you. And there is hope. And um, it gets better it really does. You can get free. You can get free. I promise.
0: Thank you. And thank you for sharing your story and all your amazing research. Um, I appreciate you so much.
1: I love you so much, (laughs) Una. You're just one of my favorite people ever. Thank you so much for having me on
0: your podcast. See you later. Well, my friend, what did you think? I know that the idea of food addiction can be triggering for some people, so I would love to hear your reaction to this episode and what it brought up for you. Leave a review and let me know. And by the way, you can leave a review for every episode, and I would love it if you did, because that will really help me to know what's resonating. So let me know, and I'll see you next week hey dude thanks for listening if you like this episode make sure you're subscribed so you can get the next one and by the way if you rate and review this podcast it really helps me get found by other people who need some goals grit and some woo woo shit and be sure to connect and dm me at una duncan on instagram and let me know what you thought of the episode chat soon